I'm Tony Epstein, and this is the Magical Mystery Tour. Join us as we dive into the heart of things, exploring new ideas and new ways of seeing and being in this wondrous, crazy world we share together. This is a journey into sound. Brought to you in living color. How do you like that? The fault, dear Buddhist, is not in our stars, but in ourselves. Good luck. We care about your world. Stay tuned. My guest is Wendy DeRosa. She's an internationally renowned intuitive healer and teacher. She's the founder of the School of Intuitive Studies and the author of this wonderful new book that we'll be talking about, Becoming an Empowered Empath, How to Clear Energy, Set Boundaries, and Embody Your Intuition. So, Wendy, welcome. Mm, Thank you so much for having me. So, let's start with what an empath is and the different ways that we can pick up on and respond to other people's energy. And and is there a difference between being empathic and being empathetic? Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So an empath is someone who feels the energy of other people through their sentient body. And that might mean that they feel the energy interpersonally with an individual or several people in front, you know, in, in the presence of. Um, it also might mean they feel the collective, or it mean, might mean they walk into a space and they feel the energy or the vibe of the space or the room. And an empath, you know, what's interesting is to answer your question about empathic versus empathetic, um, it's a lot of times empaths will say, I'm an empath, therefore I take on the energy of others. And what's important to know about the empath or all of us is that we have this, we have this field of energy around our bodies, our auric field. And the empath is someone who feels the energy that another person might be feeling or experiencing, but overly empathic means that that energy is crossed over their boundary and is in their space. And you know, the book is a lot about why that happens or how to prevent that from happening. But empathetic means that I have compassion. I can feel 
what another person might be experiencing, the empath might actually experience that overly empathic crossing over of energy into their space or into their field. And empathy or empathetic might mean I'm in the presence of someone who's in an emotional experience, they're grieving, they're in anger, and I have empathy or I can feel that they're in that space. Whereas an empath might actually, you know, think about it later or process it through their body later or have an, you know, sort of, um, they don't always go home with it, but sometimes they do if they're having overly empathic experiences and they might actually sort of feel that energy later in the day or through the evening or through sometimes waking up in the middle of the night processing something about it. So it sounds like developing a kind of special set of boundaries is a really important part of learning to be an empath in this world. Yeah, definitely establishing boundaries. Um, you know, it's easier said than done because there is so much about what's happening in the energetic body that creates this overly empathic experience. And that's, again, what I go into in the book is what's happening on the energetic level in the energetic anatomy that's creating this boundaryless experience. A lot of it has to do with you know, our history, our early childhood conditioning, some ways that we disconnect from ourselves. So yes, boundaries, but sometimes just putting a light, you know, a bubble of light around us as a boundary or walking away isn't always enough. So you mentioned childhood things having an influence. Are some people born empaths or do circumstances bring it out or suppress it? Yeah, it's a great question. So everyone, the empathic sense is the first sense that develops in the womb for human beings. We are sentient beings. So we feel in the womb vibration. And it's through that vibration that we will have sort of automatic nervous system responses in the body before eyes are developed or ears are developed. It's really this sensory experience. So everyone's born in many ways with the empathic sense. What will happen is that we will come into our human experience, you know, be born into the family system, which is imposed by a greater system. I mean, that system could be our culture, it could be the town we live in, it could be the country, it could be patriarchy, it could be anything. It's the system that we were, it could be a religious system. Whatever the system is that, you know, holds the family system to their ways of operating and conditioning how we're going to survive in the world, that level of influence to our young developing self and how we absorb and internalize how we are going to bond and attach and feel safe in the world has everything to do with whether or not, you know, we're going to be grounded in ourselves and supported in ourselves and develop strong sense of self, which is part of boundaries, or whether or not we're going to disconnect from ourselves 
become ungrounded, live higher in our body, and therefore become very energetically empathic or sensitive or overly empathic. Um, You know, I think it's important just to give a little bit of framework here about what happens to the empath energetically as to why they're taking on the energy of other people, just to give some kind of background and context, if that's okay to explain. Absolutely. So I talk about in my book, the energetic system, and I, which means the chakras. And part of the work in becoming an empowered empath is understanding our chakra system and what is happening in those areas of our body. And our chakra system and our energetic system underlays the nervous system and underlays our physical experience. So a lot of our nervous system responses and physical responses in the world come from imprints that we experience on an energetic level that might be childhood experiences that also might be energy we came into this world with. And it informs how we respond in the world or how our nervous system operates in the world. Well, a little sensitive being, a little baby, born into a family system where the child has to bond to the way of existing in that family system. So I'll back up to say is this time period, zero to seven years old, is I call it the root chakra developing years. The root chakra is at the base of the spine, and it corresponds to our sense of safety and grounding and survival and attachment and trust. And when we're in those years, zero to seven years old, we are absorbing everything and we are developing our beliefs about ourselves and our ways of surviving in the world. Well, if I'm raised in an environment where safety is compromised on some level, meaning there's trauma, there's, I don't know, alcoholism, there's abandonment, there's emotional abandonment, there's beliefs such as children are meant to be seen, not heard, or I was punished for my emotions. If I was angry, I was sent to my room. If I had grief, I was told I was too sensitive. You know, any teachings that we would have gotten at a very early age starts to, what happens is in the root chakra developing years is that it starts to contract. Literally, the root chakra contracts in the body to preserve ourselves and to bond to the tribe. So basically, I have to disconnect from my inherent sense of grounding and safety inside of myself so that I can survive in this family system. Well, what happens to the empath when that root chakra contraction happens is that the second chakra in the body opens up And it starts to feel everything that's going on in the environment around us because that power center, which is located in the pelvis, is inherently the power center that feels the subtle. It is the empathic power center of the body. So empaths come into this world with very strong second chakras. They can feel what goes on beneath the table. 
but an empath who has a root chakra contraction and the second chakra overcompensates for that means that the second chakra is now survival depends on this area of the body, the second chakra, being hypervigilant and paying attention to what everybody's doing and feeling and needing and meeting those needs through peacekeeping or overcompensating or over-responsibility or, you know, any codependency, all of that starts to open up for the empath in the second chakra. And that pattern repeats itself over and over again in life with energy. And so an empath who, you know, from the upper chakras, a high-functioning self doesn't want to be taking on the energy of others or feeling overwhelmed, the second chakra and the root chakra have a mind of their own and are essentially programmed from childhood at this point to be attuned and overly absorbent of energy around them. The root chakra is how we ground, and if the root chakra is shut down, then we're absorbing or reading energy around us without the benefit of being grounded. So that can have a, a profound effect upon us, usually a very dissociative or confusing or very challenging effects on us. Absolutely. That's absolutely what happens. And, you know, we don't want to not be grounded or have this, this grounding cord. So I talk about this in the book, the grounding cord image that is secure around the hips and extends deep into the earth. And that vital pipeline is what connects us to our sense of grounding, our sense of self, being able to stay in our bodies. And we actually, you know, we develop that over time. We don't have a grounding cord right out of the womb. We have an umbilical cord. And then we have bonding and attachment with our parents and we develop this sense of grounding, but if we haven't been nurtured, you know, in our sense of self, then the grounding cord doesn't fully form, and we end up staying in a root chakra contraction. And it's exactly what you're saying. It's that we can go through life experiences where the root chakra contracts. There isn't enough life force going down through the grounding cord, and then the spirit lifts higher in the body. And we are very high-functioning up in the head or the heart area. But that also can be, you know, disassociative or disconnected from, you know, from the experience that happened at the time. And, and that's protective. As much as, you know, it can be a problem to be ungrounded, it's also the body's beautiful way of compensating and taking care of itself when something was traumatic or difficult to go through in our younger years. One of the things that really struck me reading your book was how much I loved the way you wrote about the chakras and the chakra system. Before reading your book, it all seemed so abstract. And you also grounded that understanding of the chakras through the many guided meditations that you take us through in the book. And that issue of how we contract or shut down our root chakra to protect ourselves seems counterintuitive 
considering how important it is for us to be able to ground ourselves? I mean, counterintuitive in terms of we need to be grounded, but here's the root chakra preserving itself or protecting itself. Exactly. Yeah. So one of the things I want to be very clear and, and careful about when we're talking about energy work and the ways that our, you know, our history and what happens is that I want, I want to be careful of anyone feeling, you know, shame or feeling wrong for being ungrounded or, you know, not, not being in the lower body in this particular way. And I just want to give a little context that it's just not taught to us. It's not, you know, we live in a society, a world where there's a lot more technology, there's a lot more pavement, we're not farming, many people are not making big generalizations here, but, you know, it's not like we have the hands in the dirt or we're as connected to the earth as we used to be a hundred years ago. You know, this is why I brought in the outer system earlier, is because we are raised in a system, and that system has particular ways of existing and, I'll say, rules or conditioning or control. And in that system, we develop how we are going to survive in that system. One of the things that's important to know is that the body has this beautiful way of compensating and taking care of itself when something isn't right or or, or something doesn't feel okay, safe, or natural to the body. So, for example, if my root chakra contracts because I am feeling afraid to be myself or I feel I don't belong, my inherent sense of self doesn't belong in this system or in this family or on this earth even, then the second chakra is going to open up and compensate for that and do its job to protect us. And so as much as it can feel, you know, yes, we want to be grounded in our bodies, and that's what we need for boundaries. That's what we need to feel ourselves. And that's the one thing with empaths is that we, you know, empaths would disconnect from their selves and not feel themselves and feel other people. And so it becomes this very mergy, confusing experience of, is this mine or is this not mine? You know, am I feeling myself or am I not feeling myself? Part of that, sort of the anecdote of that is that we are grounded, that we get deeply embodied in these lower chakras, but we're learning. We're learning how to reconnect and embody in this area of our bodies after probably many, many years of needing to live higher up in the body because that's what survival depended on. So I always feel like rather than shaming or wronging ourselves for being too high up or too much in the head or ungrounded, but to thank that part of us that compensated, that did its job at the expense of, you know, a contraction or an imbalance in our system. Mm Mm-hmm. And another thing, uh, considering how abstract the whole chakra system thing was for me from all the different things that I have encountered prior to this book, you write about how the lower chakras are really the most important chakras for most of us. And there's this kind of trope that 
in the New Age that people want to be up in their higher chakras and that they don't want to be identified or or the lower chakras are somehow, you know, they're lower. They're not as important spiritually or something like that. And I would love for you to talk about the importance of the lower chakras, especially for an empath, and also how trauma and beliefs get stored in our lower chakras, you know, particularly from our early childhood development, and why the lower chakras are so important and important to work with. Yeah, absolutely. It's a great question. So the lower chakras, meaning the first, second, and third, that's the tailbone, pelvis, and solar plexus region, they are the chakras that carry more density. What I mean by that is they carry more of our humanness. They also carry a lot of our history, a lot of the experiences that we would have gone through in our early childhood development up until sort of our egoic development, which is sort of the pubescent years and beyond. But there's so much history of how we are going to belong on this earth, socially interact in this earth, and have relationships. They are the relational power centers on that humanity level. The upper chakras are where we connect more to spirit, to the divine realm, and they're part of more of our evolution. How are we evolving here based on perception, based on visualization, based on higher potential, based on divinity? It's also how we are in relationship with spirit through our hearts, spirituality through our hearts. There's more to say. I'm giving a very abridged version here. But what happens is that it's true. I, I mean, I, I come across this myself where there's a lot of emphasis on awakening and enlightenment, specifically focusing on the upper chakras, higher and going up and out, sixth, seventh, eighth, ninth, tenth chakras, like high above our head and our spirit. But we are deeply called into planetary and human evolution right now. We can't walk on the earth transformed. We can't serve on this planet unless we know how to be in the root chakra. We, you know, this is how walking here on this planet as a human being has to do a transformation at the root chakra. Being in the conscious relationships and being able to be present and empowered in ourselves with emotions has to do with second chakra. You know, being able to have confidence to manifest our true self our true being into the world and to be able to be relatable is third chakra. I mean, these are aspects of our human evolution. And so what I mean by that is these are aspects of being a spiritually evolved human being. It's about being grounded in our, in our lower chakras. So what happens here in terms of belief systems and how we manifest or how we absorb and operate from them at such a young age is that and we have to remember that these lower chakras are very related to developmental stages of life. So I mentioned zero to seven years old in the root chakra. Second chakra can be somewhere between seven and 12. 
give or take. These are you know, sort of ballpark ranges, depends on each person. And then the pubescent ears, you know, 11, 12 to, I don't know, 18, 19, 20, solar plexus developing years, years of rebellion, years of trying to find our identity and how we belong in our social construct in the world. And what happens is that when we have been, again, raised in systems where we were taught that, you know, it's not okay for me to be me, or I have to meet expectations in order to be loved, or I'm not worthy of just receiving, I have to sacrifice or overwork in order to have value. These are inherent programming. These are beliefs that start to form. We, we absorb them. We witness them. It's not only information that was spoken to us. Sometimes it was modeled non-verbally. Sometimes it was what our parents felt about themselves. And maybe they didn't utter a word. Maybe they didn't want to pass that down. But, you know, it, it was modeled inherently to us. And we absorb that into our lower chakra system, and that informs our nervous system responses and how our brain is going to operate and how we're going to think and believe about ourselves. Another piece to add to this, and I talk about it in the book, is that sometimes what was right, what was normal for past generations, for the ancestral line gets passed down intergenerationally to us, and we absorb that. So, for example, you know, if a parent or grandparent was born in the Depression and survived during war times, you know, feast or famine gets passed on. If we have an ancestor relative you know, who were brought over and, and a slave, that's passed on intergenerationally through the bloodline, but also energetically you know, Holocaust. I mean, we can go down the line to world traumas and that we know historically happened and that our family, our ancestry lived through a lot of that time and era and they needed to believe and exist a particular way because that's what consciousness was at the time for them. That gets passed on. And so sometimes we are operating in our chakra system with outdated programming that was appropriate for, you know, previous eras, previous generations. And so, you know, that information we could be, we could be living in our, our lower chakra system. And when it comes to spiritual evolution, from my perspective, it's not about going up and out. It's about going deeper. And it's about going into the central channel. And it's about going into our power centers to identify you know, what am I ready to let go of that's operating in the cells of my body without me even knowing it half the time? You know, it's so, it's so hardwired. It's so subconscious. So how do we start awakening to the energetic imprints that are embedded in our lower chakra system and start healing and clearing and releasing and processing that energy so that our spirit can ground more deeply, sit more deeply in the power of the power centers instead of living from the wounds that are embedded in the power centers. Once we clear and heal and work with those wounds, 
we can start to increase the presence of power of safety and trust in my root chakra or embodying the feminine, no matter the gender. You know, in the second chakra, I can feel more confident in my sense of self and my being in my third chakra. So, yes, I just am echoing back that the embodiment in the lower power centers is some of our deepest spiritual work to be doing right now. So it's like we have to process all of those issues in order to create a healthy foundation from which we can grow and evolve from. Yeah. Yep, well said. Absolutely. Those lower chakras are the foundation of our energy body. When we shift there, we transform as a human being on this planet, you know, as opposed to disembodied, you know, being out of our body and unrelatable. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Many years ago, I had a teacher who said that we don't even begin the spiritual journey until we have dealt with these psychological and emotional issues on these lower levels, quote-unquote lower levels. Yeah, absolutely. Yep, I agree. So another thing you say in the book is that empaths are tend to be very sensitive to social justice and environmental issues and things like that. Could you talk about how um, racism and power imbalances arise out of wounds in the root chakra and learning to see through the layers of societal conditioning that you alluded to before that accumulate over many generations and how empaths have a responsibility to include the healing of that kind of pain, you know, the pain of, of racism and injustice in their healing work, and, and then how you do that. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I really appreciate you bringing this question forward because not everybody brings it forward in the interviews, and I think it's our most important work to be doing right now, you know, especially for white people to be healing their part in systemic racism. And so, you know, and I, I can speak to this from the white lens and that, you know, I, we do need to take responsibility for our part of embedded and in inherent patriarchy that we might not want to be, you know, in our hearts or in our spiritual sense, want to be a part of, but the truth is we are. We are embedded. We are living in a system that favors white people, ultimately. And so we have our biases. And so when it comes down to the energetic system in the body, why this is so important is because we have, and this is, again, part of spiritual work, and it's been tricky in the spiritual world to be addressing racism from the energetic system and, and the body because the concepts like we're all one or... You know, we should be open to everyone and peace for all being just simply whitewashes the experience that people of color have, which is that this is not the case for them. It's very dismissive. And so what's really important for us to know in our energetic system, and this is true no matter our skin color, when we come down to the root chakra element of our body, we carry the history of our culture, 
We carry the history of our country. We carry the history of the land that we live on. And we carry the history of our intergenerational line. And that's just to name some aspects of our history in our body. And I'll just say this in first-person example as a white person. What's normal to me as a white person is that I can feel a sense of safety in myself, in my root chakra elements, in my country or in my land that has a bias towards white people. The system is set up to favor, you know, the white race. So I will have inherently a level of safety inside myself that my husband, who's brown, won't have in his system. He lives with an inherent sense of he has to be a little bit more hypervigilant in the world than I do. You know, I can go to certain parts of my state and not have to worry, whereas my husband, and when we go to certain parts of the state, you know, his alarm goes up. He is now, he's on watch. He's looking around. He has to pay attention to, you know, who is around him because he doesn't know if he inherently is going to be safe in this body that he's in and the skin color that he has. The part that we are needing to dismantle, and this is what's so interesting about the pandemic year in 2020, is that it's almost like, I made this analogy recently where it's almost like, you know, Mother Earth shook us all and said, you're grounded for a year and you're going to have to sit in your root chakras. And in your root chakras, you're going to have to feel systemic racism and you're going to have to feel climate. You're going to have to feel all issues around health and safety and what is truth. And, you know, I could go down the list here of all the issues that were up for us in the pandemic year. And it's not that they were new by any means. And yet, we had to get in touch with them. They unearthed, essentially, in a bigger way. They rose, and I talk about this further in the book, but it is an aspect of the feminine rising, the feminine having compassion for humanity, the feminine having empathy and care for human beings. And so this rise of everything that erupted in the pandemic year has us looking at what got touched in us and how it affects us personally, individually. And for spiritually progressing souls, if we're doing our healing work, that means we're looking at our root chakras and our second chakras and we're identifying where have I been complacent in the system of systemic racism. And for people of color to be able to speak and be heard on their truth and Quite honestly, they're probably many are frankly exhausted from trying to, you know, speak and go through, you know, trauma over and over again to be heard and to have these, you know, killings and examples, things that are happening in the world, people dying, police brutality, whatever, just so that they can be heard or seen. I mean, how much needs to happen for us to wake up? And so it's our work. And for empaths, and I think what happens is, there's this experience of, well, this is all big and negative and traumatic energy. And the truth is it is, but it's partly how we work with it is that we go inward and we start looking at where is my story 
around the history of this country, and I'm saying, saying this country being the United States, you know, what was the real story of what happened in this country, and how do I embody that? How do I embody the consciousness of the forefathers and, you know, women not being able to have the right to vote, you know, for over 100 years or longer, you know, not having the same rights, or black people not being able to vote or have rights. So we've been complacent in that this is the way it has been, but what is shaking up for us on this deeper level for empaths in particular is that we are waking up to the injustice and that this is not right. This is, you know, this is inherently inequality that we've been living in and existing in. And yes, we will have to feel the pain of it, maybe the shame around it, you know, the grief around it, the anger around it, but it's part of our work to really process what we have been holding in the shadow of our being and be able to do our part in advocating and standing in our truth and supporting. And if we want unity, it has to happen on a civil rights level. That's the only way it's going to happen. That's the way through it. It's not going to happen by making spirituality separate from civil rights. And they're very connected. That is how we're going to go through it. And so it is very much about processing the history, again, that we're holding in the root chakra level of our body. So it sounds like there is a lot of grieving to do in our root chakra in relation to all of that racism and injustice and inequality, particularly from that male-dominated white body supremacy? I believe so. I believe grief. I believe there's probably suppressed anger, which is rage. Um, You know, I think each individual is going to have the feeling that they're having, but certainly I believe grief underneath the anger. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I definitely have experienced a lot of rage and sadness for many years as I've learned about many different aspects of of racism, racial violence, and inequality, and white supremacy. And it's not something that goes away. It's something that that's always there. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I think we're in it for the long haul, you know, it's like every time there's an atrocity, a killing, a, you know, something that happens that, you know, it, it sort of surfaces again as something that we need to look at and work on, you know, systemic racism and white supremacy. And here we are, you know, I, I believe that when we come down to our deeper healing work in our body, we absolutely, this is just another level of it. I mean, there's absolutely incredible writers and teachers, authors, scholars who are out there teaching about racism. And it's the important work that we need to be reading about and learning about to unlearn what was inherently taught to us and what we marinated in. And there is a way that chakra healing work, we can absolutely continue healing our biases and our blind spots that we hold in our energy body. 
And I would love for you to talk about the role or the place of feminine energy and working with the wounded feminine and wounded masculine aspects of ourselves in all of these dynamics. Yeah, absolutely. So it does tie right into, again, you know, everything that's arisen for us, it, not just in tw- the year 2020, but it just has been over time, which is that, you know, the feminine is rising and the feminine is, again, it's empathy, it's being in tuned with our emotions, it's vulnerability, it's uh, having heart and compassion, it's having connected conversations and transparency. You know, this is very much an aspect of existence, of a quality of being that is rising in people, in companies, you know, and in, in how we're, we're working in the world. And, and it's not there yet fully, but it, it is rising. And what it's combating what it's in contrast with is the wounded masculine, which is the patriarchy, which is the toxic patriarchy. So in our energy body, no matter our gender, we have four aspects of masculine and feminine energy. We have the wounded feminine, we have the wounded masculine, we have the healthy feminine, and we have the healthy masculine. The wounded masculine is the patriarchy, like I mentioned, or toxic patriarchy. In other words, another aspect of it is the narcissist. Mm -hmm. And what that means is wounded because it has disconnected from its own feminine nature. It is afraid of its feminine. It is afraid of vulnerability. It has experienced shame at such a deep level that having feelings or being intimately connected or being transparent or being vulnerable in any way is an absolute threat. That's the wounded masculine, and therefore it it controls, it dominates, it oppresses. That's how it seeks power. Now, the wounded feminine is the victim, that part of us that becomes powerless doesn't have rights, falls asleep, disconnects, you know, loses will or power to sometimes the dominant force. Now, in our bodies, this can happen to us at any given day. Our wounded masculine can be our monkey mind, you know, can be the critical voice inside us that shoots us down. That's the wounded masculine in us. The wounded feminine in us, again, can be victimized. I'm weak, I can't succeed, I don't believe in myself, I just don't have the energy or the oomph for the, the belief in myself that I can do it. Those are some examples of how wounded feminine and wounded masculine can play out in our own body, and we can see it out there in the world. It's mirrored in our collective, the wounded feminine and the wounded masculine. So how we work with these, how we heal these aspects, is that the wounded masculine, we want to evolve to the healthy masculine. And the wounded feminine, we want to evolve to the healthy feminine. Well, the way that we bring the balance in is that one of these dynamics need to change in our system. And the one that is the instigator, the one that is the transformational, you know, oomph 
to, you know, the major fire starter is the healthy feminine. And the more that we allow the feminine to be seen and to rise, the healthy feminine, again, our intuition, our ability to be vulnerable, our emotions, our ability to have connected conversations, our heart, our calling in the world, and our ability to be in co-creation with the divine and our creative energy. That aspect of our being, the healthy feminine, the more we nurture it, it will heal the wounded aspects of itself, the victim, and it will also bring the wounded masculine into balance, meaning it will help the healthy masculine to rise so that the wounded aspect can heal because the wounded aspect is ultimately in fear of vulnerability. But if we make vulnerability okay and honor it as a power inside ourselves, it actually starts to balance the healthy feminine with the healthy masculine. Those two parts of us come into balance. The healthy masculine yields to the feminine. It doesn't overpower it. It knows its place. It is protective. It is productive. It is rational and problem-solving. Those are good qualities. But out of balance, it goes into control and dominance. But when the healthy masculine is in balance with the healthy feminine because the healthy feminine has risen inside ourselves, then the two can come together and support each other. And that becomes a powerful aspect of our embodiment, our intuition, and also our presence, our empathic boundary that comes from being embodied and present inside ourselves. And one of the things that occurs in that balancing and healing process is the ability to be present with our own shadow feelings, things like shame and guilt and things like that that are very difficult for many of us to acknowledge and which also gets in the way of being able to take responsibility for our role in perpetuating these systems of uh, inequality and racism and other forms of systemic inequities. Yeah, absolutely. That's a beautiful thread that you just drew. I think that's powerful. Yeah. And you write that taking responsibility means that I'm not afraid of my own difficult feelings. I accept that it is only human to have such feelings, and I'm willing to do my part in these struggles. Yeah, there's so much conditioning around our emotions, and in many ways, there's shame around our emotions. Like, to even get to a feeling, we have to feel the shame first that we're even having the feeling. You know, I'm sorry I'm crying right now, or I feel embarrassed that I'm angry. You know, we have to feel this, like, wronging, this bad and wrong, that I'm not okay to have this feeling before we can actually have the feeling. And, and a lot of that comes from, again, in childhood, receiving the punishment for having, we've been told that it's not okay for you to have this anger. It's not okay for you to be crying right now. Don't embarrass me. You know, and these social conditionings that we've gotten around emotions create a shame blanket 
over our emotions and you know, and sometimes we, you know, we feel shame for having shame. <laughs> we feel shame for having anger. We feel shame for having, you know, all different natural emotions. And part of our healing as empaths and even part of our boundary setting as empaths is that we start giving ourselves permission to have the feeling. I have anger right now. I am sad right now I and we just even naming the feeling is a form of reparenting we might not have gotten that in childhood parenting but when we start to reparent ourselves through having the feelings what we do is we build capacity to have that emotion we don't get scared or shut down when we are having a feeling and therefore we don't get scared and disassociate or shut down when someone else is having the feeling. Those moments when we have split-second regressions into disconnection and disassociation when someone is having a feeling are the moments when in energy transfers. That's when we become absorbent in that moment. If I were to sit in my body and say, wow, this person is really in their upset, you know, they're really angry, they're really, you know, grieving and I can stay with myself, I won't absorb the energy because I'm not afraid. I'm not disconnecting from my own body while someone else is having the feeling I'm staying grounded and intact and therefore I can have empathy as opposed to becoming overly empathic. You just basically answered the next question I had, or the next thing I wanted to bring up, which was about um, the difference between sensing others' emotional energy and absorbing it or being affected by it, which raises a deeper question of, are we taking on the energy of others, or is it an opportunity to look at some aspect of our own shadow? I believe both are happening. I believe that in my experience, there's a lot of collective trauma in the field right now. And for anyone who maybe even doesn't identify as an empath, for any anyone at this point is having empathic experiences or feeling something. And so, you know, people are absorbing or, or being, yeah, they're certainly feeling because we've got a lot of energy flying around. And at the same time, it always serves us, I believe, from an emotional and energetic responsibility perspective to ask ourselves the deeper question, why am I taking this on? You know, I'm not, oh, I'm tired. I wasn't present in myself. I've been not listening to my intuition. I've been up in my head. I haven't been getting the sleep I need. I haven't been taking care of my body. You know, these are all moments when the energy system is more vulnerable, when we aren't taking care of ourselves on that deeper level. And so anytime we're triggered, there's always an invitation to say, what is that about and what's getting triggered in me? And is there something I need to see or look at or tune in on about this experience I'm having, this trigger that I'm having, you know, at the same time, self-care is needed right now because there is so much 
going on in the world right now that is, um, I'm going to call it irresponsible energy, meaning no one's owning it. It's all projecting. So I think it is important that we do stay grounded. We keep working on our embodiment and our radiance in our energy body from our lower chakras. And we build that resilience from the inside out. And we will need to have some protection and some self-care techniques. We just might need to be more in tuned with what we need. And also, how do these dynamics manifest on a collective level in ways that, that affect us? How do they manifest on a collective level? So collective energy often triggers personal experiences. At the same time, personal experiences, personal wounds can influence the collective. You know, if I'm not taking responsibility for the hurt and pain or I'm not seeking the help I need or I'm really suffering and, again, I'm not getting support in it, I might project out into the world or onto others my pain. I might shame or blame them or make them wrong or, God forbid, do harm to somebody outside of ourselves because I'm operating from my unprocessed trauma inside my being. So that's one of the ways that we can unfortunately project into the collective, um, you know, our own, our own unhealed parts. We can project into the collective our healthy radiance, too. I mean, we can influence and change lives based on us accessing our deeper power and why we're here. Why are we on this earth? You know, what is my footprint? And am I doing that in this life? And if I do more of that, how many lives can I touch? You know, and how can I feed back into the collective from my sense of power and my radiance and my presence and my, my purpose here on this earth? That is also a way that we feed the collective. And as a final question, you say that empaths are here to help raise consciousness. What do you mean by that? And how do we do that? So I believe that empaths are shifting our collective consciousness. And part of that is because empaths are no longer willing to sit in the unspoken. They're no longer willing to abide by non-transparency. They are for connected conversations. They are advocates of truth. They care about humanity, the planet, and other people. And I believe that as empaths are coming more into these qualities and their power and why they're here on this planet doing their service, maybe they're healers, maybe they're helpers, maybe they're caregivers in the world, maybe they're first responders on the planet. The more that empaths are stepping into the purpose of why they're here and having a voice and even their creative energy in the world are ways that they're, they're creatively expressing in this world, they are shifting everything, like how we do business, they're shifting healthcare, they're shifting how we are interacting, they're part of advocacy and civil rights change. I mean, they are, they are the people who care deeply. And so I do believe that they are, they are the people that are on the forefront of our collective evolution right now. Mm. 
My guest has been Wendy DeRosa. She's an internationally renowned intuitive healer and teacher. She's the founder of the School of Intuitive Studies and the author of this wonderful new book we've been talking about, Becoming an Empowered Empath, How to Clear Energy, Set Boundaries, and Embody Your Intuition. Wendy, I've enjoyed this conversation so much. Thank you so, so much. And I really appreciate the way you put all of this together in your book. Oh, thank you so much. It's been an honor. I really, really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you. And be well. Thank you. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. There are three million species of animals living in tropical rainforests. And one of them, the red fire ant, lives underground, under constant threat of annihilation from flash floods. Nature doesn't care. If a species wants to survive, it has to prove it deserves to. When the floods come, fire ants hold on to each other, creating a living raft that can float until the water recedes. Months, if necessary. So how does a species figure something like that out? Instinct? Trial and error? Was there one fire ant who was being swept away by the rushing water and grabbed onto another ant, only to find that together they could float? What if you were the one who knew what needed to be done? But you had no words. How do you make the others understand? How do you call for help? Human beings are not the strongest species on the planet. We're not the fastest or maybe even the smartest. The one advantage we have is our ability to cooperate. To help each other out. We recognize ourselves in each other and we're programmed for compassion, for heroism, for love. And those things make us stronger, faster, and smarter. It's why we've survived. It's why we've wanted. Four hundred ninety thousand babies will be born today. Each of them unique. And each one of them, a link in the greater human chain. And the moment their umbilical cord is severed, they'll become an individual, their own hopes, dreams, and desires. 
But in fact, each one of us is actually made up of a dozen systems, which in turn comprise 60 trillion cells. And those cells house countless proteins, DNA organelles. What appears to be an individual is actually and in fact a living, breathing community. But it doesn't stop there. Why would it? Every individual hope you harbor, every dream you attain, every desire you fulfill has an impact far greater than you can imagine. The threads that connect us are not bound by space and time. What seems to the individual like a twist of fate from another perspective is simply one of those threads pulled tight. How things should have been all along. And even when those threads seem irreparably frayed, they never break. Not completely. But sometimes, the most important connection is here and now. Human beings are hardwired with the impulse to share our ideas and the desire to know we've been heard. It's all part of our need for community. That's why we're constantly sending out signals and signs and why we look for them from other people. We're always waiting for messages, hoping for connection. And if we haven't received a message, that doesn't always mean it hasn't been sent to us. Sometimes it means we haven't listened hard enough. In spite of all our communication technology, no invention is as effective as the sound of the human voice. By the glaze in your eye, by your shape, by your size, by the pen in your heart, by the art in your room, by your bicycle, by the hole in your shoe, by New York, by the blue, by the song in your throat, by the sting in your nose, by your watermark. When we hear the human voice, we instinctively want to listen in the hopes of understanding it. Even when the speaker is searching for the right words to say. Even when all we hear is yelling or crying. because the human voice resonates differently from anything else in the world. That's why we can hear a singer's voice over the sound of a full orchestra. We will always hear that singer, no matter what else surrounds it. 
search valleys and mountain tops, rolling hills and ticking clocks. Soil talk to you. So I got to thinking, you know, if coffee were a man, it'd be a black man. Joyous, welcoming, warm, life-giving. He wouldn't be for everyone. He's he's definitely an acquired taste. Bold, adaptable. He would give of his best for your good and gladly share in the fruits of his grind and sweat. Neither heat nor high pressure would scare him. He would and does flourish come hail or hot water, and he would welcome them both because he knows it brings out the best of him. He wouldn't mind the crushing of a grind because his is more or less porolex. His creative process is naturally washed. 
sun-dried. He'd be single-origined in nature, specifically North African, yet he'd flourish in multiple regions if the climate was suitable. South Central American, Afro-Latin, Micronesian. He would enjoy working with the indigenous and find joy in the sounds and flavor notes their music might bring if coffee were a man it'd be a black man shipped away by force and of course forced to grind and grind he must if coffee were a man he'd be exhausted yet expected to get everybody woke he'd be seen for the cure for the morning blues but wouldn't nobody play his his second visit would feel much more like appropriation rather than appreciation he would feel like he had been working in fields, making gourmet from scraps, treasure from trash, only to get his meal handed to the same hands that handed him over. If coffee were a woman, it'd be a black woman, bold, strong, beautiful, delicate, elegant, complex, well-traveled, actually exponentially more complex than fine wine. Remember when she went abroad, Turkey, Vienna, Spain, the collaboration was amazing. She would have explored multiple worlds. She'd be naturally washed, sun-dried, exotic, cultured with a refined palate. Elevation wouldn't scare her. She would thrive in regions others can't. They can't breathe the air up there. If coffee were person, there'd be this haunting sense of irony. What was a centuries-old practice of the populace has became a global craze save only for the pompous. How could something so black be so white? She would be heated up and watered down and mixed with cream and artificial sweetener cause they can't stomach her purity for them. She too bold, too bitter, yet simultaneously the purists would say they like the black in her right the black. Only if coffee were mother she would need well. She would say that there was another way where we can make beautiful art, latte that is, swirling flowers, loving swans, where black and white and brown can dance, making amazing blossoms, and we could cull through some experiments with nitrogen and mocha, where bitter and sweet harmonize, making beautiful notes of coffee, where person it would say don't profit off our backs. And use the faces of our farmers for marketing for those that don't want us in their country in the first place. It's coffee. Person. They would say that there was a foreign way where black and white and brown can dance. Good morning. Let's dance. Do all you can. Do all you can with what you have in the time you have, in the place you are. Do all you can. I can't think of a more beautiful and simple definition of what I am dedicating my life to at this moment, which is a vision of what I call sacred activism. But I'm not going to define sacred activism for you. I'm going to tell you a story from my life, experience that changed my life. 
and made me crazy enough to take planes in the middle of the night so I can come and speak to people like you. One of the things I love about deep friendship is that you come to hear the stories of the people you love, stories about what really shifted them. I want to share, as your friend, a very intimate story so that you will know why I do what I do and care in the way I care. And so that you will remember the stories in your life that really have shifted you. In 1989, I was invited by Elle magazine to go to Oslo to interview the Dalai Lama on the day that he won the Nobel Prize. And I think of all the marvelous things that have happened to me in my life, being alone with him for two hours in a small white room in a Norwegian hotel on the day, this epochal day, when he was going to be awarded the highest honor in the human race, was perhaps my happiest and most extraordinary day. I had met His Holiness before, but on that day, we sat for two hours in this room and talked about everything, talked about Tibet, talked about violence, talked about the environment, talked about the enormous world crisis that even then he saw quite clearly was going to get worse and going to challenge human life and human extinction. And I'll never forget one moment in the conversation when he leant across and he said, people must understand that we are not in a crisis. We are in an emergency. At the end of the two hours, he got up and he said, I'm so sorry, but I have to go and get the Nobel Prize now, so we really must stop talking. <laughs> so I looked into his eyes, these amazing eyes of this amazing man, absolutely amazing man. To be in a room with him is so extraordinary because of his incredible humility and tenderness and attention to you, you feel magical. You feel powerful. You feel that this wonderful being is giving him total attention to you. So I got up. He got up. And I gazed into his eyes. And I plucked up my courage. And I said to him, I'll never be alone with you like this, and especially not on an amazing day like this. So, Your Holiness, what is the meaning of life? <laughs> His Holiness, who has one of the more famous laughs in the world, just flung his head back and roared this beautiful, multifoliant and polyphonic laugh that went up and down every known register. And the walls seemed to shake with his laugh. And then suddenly, he brought himself into himself and he became immensely concentrated like a laser beam. And he seemed to shake with divine power. And he looked at me very, very seriously. 
and he pointed at me and he gazed deep into my eyes and he said, the point of life is to embody the transcendent. And as he brought his hand down, I felt this flame of power go up and down my body. And I knew beyond thought, beyond words, that what I'd been given was not simply the key to life, but I was being given that key by somebody who knew the truth of it and who was living it and who had found out that the deepest source of the deepest happiness comes not from connecting with divine love, not just from feeling divine peace, not just from having a few mystical experiences in between gambling on the stock market, but actually plunging into a life of transformation and coming to that miraculous moment when he knew that the Buddha of compassion was living in him and using his arms and his legs and his eyes and every thought to really reach out to all human beings everywhere to bless all human beings at all moments and all sentient beings at all moments forever and ever because he had come to the moment through the divine grace when he was embodying compassion, being love in a body. Even an Englishman couldn't talk at that moment. (laughs) And he saw that I was completely overwhelmed by the majesty and the beauty of the moment. And he said, you know what we're going to do? I said, no. (laughs) He said, you and I are going to take five very quiet minutes and we're going to walk from where I'm sitting now, you're standing now, to the end of the room. Which actually was about 30 yards. It was a very small little room, but it had a long corridor. So he took my hand and he looked at me And he and I walked very slowly to the door. And then in the door, he let go of my hand. And he said very tenderly, he said, Goodbye, my dearest friend. And I have met him twice. But I knew he wasn't making things up. He was speaking out of unconditional love. And on the day that he was going to get the Nobel Prize, he didn't go back into the room. He stood by the door and I could see him as I walked down that vast hotel corridor, just standing there, radiating, radiating love towards me. So not only had he told me the secret of life, he showed me by what he did and how he did it, what it means to be somebody who lives divine love. That was a huge clue to me.
it for this Magical Mystery Tour. Thank you so much for listening. If you missed any of the show or would like to hear it again, you can find this and all Magical Mystery Tour shows at soundcloud.com slash WGDR. And until next time, take good care of yourselves and each other. Music